to Deep Learning Dialogues, the essential podcast for K-12 educators diving into the transformative world of generative AI. In each episode, we bring you insights from experts at the forefront of this innovative technology. We'll discuss the WCBSB AI guidelines and explore how Gen AI can be used in a human-centered way to foster equity, inclusion, and belonging in the classrooms. We're your hosts, Whitney McKinley and Katrina Gowett. Join us as we navigate the possibilities of Gen AI to enrich learning experiences while staying true to our vision. Don't forget to keep in touch and join in on the conversation with your questions and comments in our form located in the show notes. Now, let's dive in. here together at the Waterloo Catholic District School Board Office and would like to acknowledge that the land we gather on today is the land traditionally cared for by the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Chinatown peoples. We also acknowledge the enduring presence and deep traditional knowledge, laws, and philosophies of the Indigenous peoples with whom we share this land today. So um, we'd love you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so hi, uh, my name is Dr. Carrie Weaver. I'm an educator and librarian who has been working in higher education for close to two decades. I'm also a noted scholar on topics including co-teaching relationships, misinformation, and academic integrity in grade six through graduate level education, particularly in the STEM disciplines. Um, I work across instructional delivery modalities, and in my teaching career, I've taught over 40,000 students in person as both a course instructor and through co-curricular education, and have reached over 500,000 learners in the last 13 years through various open, asynchronous online learning objects, including video, audio, infographic, and interactive module formats. So I have a long history in the higher education space and I'm definitely interested in the ways in which K through 12 students transition into higher education. Sounds like you're very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Aren't all educators. Fair enough, right? Um, So we're here, our our focus really um, is looking at generative AI and how that is affecting education as a whole. So um, in what ways has generative AI transformed education at a post-secondary level? So GenAI is a really interesting paradigm shift in post-secondary education. It has huge potential, but it also has elicited major concerns. And I think that that's true throughout the educational sector. Um, But in post-secondary, it's really requiring instructors and students to deeply consider what the function and purpose of learning is. Um, And in a very practical way, it's changing how people have to practice their teaching. Um, Instructors really have to be more focused on examining and evaluating the process of learning um, rather than relying as they traditionally have on the final output or assessment that represents that learning. 
which is often in the post-secondary context, the traditional essay, um, or sometimes other outputs like a scientific poster or um, something a little bit more creative. So you have to look at the learning and try to capture the learning as it's happening, um, which is definitely a shift. So we're essentially shifting from more summative to more formative assessment processes. Um, I think there are also a lot of ongoing discussions about the potential benefits of Gen AI to provide more personalized learning for students. So this is particularly important um, as a conversation right now in post-secondary education in Ontario, um, as we're preparing to adapt to the 183 recommendations of the forthcoming Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act post-secondary educational standards revision, um, which we're expecting to come into play likely in early 2025. So not that far in the future. Um, and the instructional recommendations within those educational standards really are grounded in universal design for learning approaches and greater personalization and flexibility are really core to universal design for learning approaches. So if we're going to that sort of very high level theoretical, um, so let's take it down to a really practical level. Um, if we think about the idea of circuits, which is really important in STEM education, particularly engineering, um, there are particular processes already established to analyze circuits and understand the flow of electricity through the circuit. With Gen AI, a student could generate test or practice problems, validate their own knowledge, explore the impact of different components or changes to the circuit structure, um, and they can use those tools to provide those outputs also in a variety of learning formats. So maybe they commute to campus, maybe it's a long commute because housing and rent prices are high. Um, and maybe they would appreciate those practice problems or questions in an audio format so that they could listen to it and practice mentally while they're on their commute. So Gen AI allows that flexibility and allows them to personalize that learning in a way that is useful within their life, within their experiences, and can connect what's happening in the classroom space to what they need as an individual learner. And moreover, they can do that, but they're instructor can also take that step or help guide students toward those tools that can help them personalize that learning. Um, beyond that, we definitely see conversation around uses for students who's um, who have a primary language that's not the language of instruction um, and how that might better support equity in learning environments. Um, and also within the post-secondary context beyond classroom environments where things like automated chatbots could enhance responsiveness when students need to interact with um, campus services and could help build a sense of connection and certainly feeling connected and feeling invested in a learning environment is really key to 
being able to effectively engage and learn um, in those contexts. So you can see that it's probably going to have um, a lot of impacts, but these issues are also really complex in the post-secondary environment. Um, one of my favorite education writers, Sharon Dallas Parks, um, sort of articulates the problem with post-secondary as um, students are really steeped in the careerism to which they have become accustomed. And what she means by this is really that students see a direct pathway between a university education and them successfully finding employment and a job and moving forward in life. So it's really the idea that this is a stepping stone and not sort of learning for learning's sake. And um, we also see that in many workplaces and business contexts, they're really starting to grapple with how to best accelerate productivity using generative artificial intelligence tools. And those two factors, combined with the fact that we have a lot of work integrated learning and cooperative education programs in the post-secondary environment, means that we really have to think about how we're doing this and how what we do in post-secondary is extending into lifelong learning and professional contexts um, and how we can support our students now in learning how and in what ways to best work with these tools effectively and how to make determinations about which tools and in what ways that changes um, depending on the different environment and fit to purpose for them. So it's not easy. It's a huge challenge and there are a lot of different factors at play. Um, and it's definitely a situation where um, the traditional response of the post-secondary environment is to just sort of step back and wait and see. Um, and then maybe we'll make a cautious step forward. Um, this is not that. This is a situation where we have to jump in and actually start acting as educators um, because the situation has shifted for us and it's shifted for the students we have now as they move forward um, in their lives. So when I think um, about my own post-secondary world <laughs> and what I had, uh, you know, walking into a first-year university class into this giant lecture hall of, I felt like it was a thousand people. It probably wasn't, but it felt that way. How do the, those two world, worlds merge? It, it sounds a lot to like process over product, those things, but I can't envision that in what my experience was. So I, I think that that's also a challenge in a lot of ways. I'm sort of going to bring it back to learning theory. Um, in a lot of ways, that really traditional lecture-based style classroom is really rooted in the idea that I, as an educator, will sort of fill you up and transfer my knowledge to you in a very behaviorist learning approach. Um, and really what we're seeing is that with these tools, we, we really have to think about the human element of learning 
the affective dimension of learning. So how do we feel? Are we overwhelmed? What do I know about you as a learner? And so part of the reality is that we have to think about instructional methods that might be different even in those large lecture-based classrooms. So we've already seen some movement in that direction. So a really good example of that is the use of the flipped classroom model within higher education, um, which has certainly been growing in popularity over time and continues to. Um, that's very effective in the sense that you can provide some learning and then it is personalized and that students are actually applying that learning in small groups. And you can do that sort of work within those larger lecture-based environments. But it requires a lot of effort and pre-planning on the part of the instructor. And that is certainly a challenge in that how do people teach often the way that they best learn? And so who ends up being successful becoming instructors in a post-secondary environment? The people who were successful getting through those large lecture environments and flourished learning in that manner, right? So it really takes a level of intentionality and thinking through changes to practice um, to be able to grapple with that. And I think that certainly over time, post-secondary institutions need to think about their classroom spaces and how the spaces themselves actually impact um, the kinds of instructional and learning decisions that are happening with, with mm -hmm. faculty and students. So um, I wish I could tell you there was a perfect answer, but <laughs> But the reality is it's hard and it's going to require thought and effort and intentionality um, all around. We're seeing so many parallels with what you're talking about post-secondary. We see so many parallels to K-12 as well. Um, but and we have a whole spectrum of teachers who are, um, you know, really engaged and excited about generative AI. And then we have um, on the opposite spectrum educators who are really nervous about it and um, to get around some of the issues around, you know, the some educators have moved to a paper and pencil task. And so we're wondering about like, there are changes happening in secondary and how can we make sure that our students in K to 12 are going to be ready for that when they get to that post-secondary stage? So, I do have a recommendation and the best recommendation is talk to your students about it. Talk to them about their feelings and concerns. Talk about your feelings and concerns. Um, the reality is that students in K through 12 right now are using and will be using Gen AI technology in learning, research, work, and ultimately in their everyday lives. And that's going to be true of the situation going forward. We already know, and I've already mentioned, that learning has a really strong emotional or affective dimension. And maybe they're excited about the possibility of new technology, but maybe they also have a lot of concerns about what this is going to mean for their future. Um, you might really be surprised what you would learn if you'd actually just talk to them about it. 
I had a pretty interesting personal experience um, with this earlier in this term in a graduate level course that I'm teaching um, for education students. And I actually, as part of that course, looked at it and thought, hmm, I'm not sure what to do with Gen AI in my instructional practice. And so I decided to leave it up to the students. And so one of the things that we did on the first night of class was I said, okay, here's the syllabus. You'll notice there's a space for the Gen AI policy. What are we going to do? How are we going to think about this? What is useful and productive ways of working with this? Are there any? What are out of bounds for us? And we're going to come up with an agreement. And we spent about an hour on it. And out of that process, it was so fascinating that one of the things that they cared most about that they asked to have put in our class policy was that they didn't want me to use these tools for grading because they were very concerned about hearing my direct feedback on their work. Um, and I thought that that was so powerful, but also in return, they realized out of that conversation that it wasn't really that useful for them to get my direct feedback on their assessments if they use Gen AI tools sort of full stop without at least seriously augmenting those outputs with a good amount of their own thought and effort. Because I could give them great feedback, but if it was great feedback and it wasn't anything that they had put thought or effort into, it wasn't useful feedback and they cared a lot about that. And I thought that that was such a powerful experience and really highlights the importance of taking the time and setting aside room to have these conversations in educational contexts. Because I would bet even at the graduate level that if we hadn't had that conversation, I would have had at least a few students who would have just gone ahead and used those tools full stop. But I can see as the class has progressed that that's not what's happening. And even if they are using those tools um, and are being very open about it, they're using them in a way to support or enhance what they're doing, not to replace their actual effort or learning. And I would also say that change, especially rapid change, can be really difficult. Um, completely overhauling our teaching practice takes a lot of time and effort and probably isn't realistic for a lot of K through 12 educators who have limited planning time and so many students um, and so much responsibility to a really well-established curriculum, right? And so maybe as an educator, you don't feel like you're ready to incorporate Gen AI into your assessments, but you'd be willing to test it out to support your own work. Um, so rubrics, for instance, for assessments are always so time consuming to write and good quality ones actually can be really easily and quickly generated through generative artificial intelligence tools. Lesson plans, too, are another great example um, where they're really regular parts of instructional practice. What if you tried it? What if you tested it? 
Um, and the key is to do that and then use your professional expertise and experience and knowledge to augment and adjust those outputs to your own needs and approach. And I think that building that comfort level is really the first step to thinking about how you might use it in other ways. Um, and beyond that, I think there are a lot of possibilities for thinking about how we could use this in differentiated instruction. For example, um, you could produce a math worksheet for your class, or maybe you have a standard math worksheet that you use for the class. You could ask Gen AI to make it a little bit more advanced um, for your more accelerated learners, or you could ask for additional examples or test questions um, to be added for those who need more time to practice or grasp those concepts. Um, one of the ways that we use it in my own household is that I'm the parent of a reluctant reader. Um, and it's really hard when you have a reluctant reader to find texts that align with their own interests. With generative artificial intelligence, we can have a new story every day um, that is motivational to my child. And so I think when you get more comfortable with it and you start thinking through these things, you see a lot of ways that maybe you can use these tools to support students learning. And a lot of what I think about, and I think it's relevant to K through 12, but also post-secondary is, what could you do to support student learning if you had someone or a lot of someone's helping you do it? Um, and in a lot of ways, Gen AI is the answer to that question as it can help you expand the time, resources, and capacity you have to meet your students' needs and learning goals. And so that to me, um, I think is really important. So bringing it back to your real question, which is how do we prepare K through 12 students for that transition to post-secondary? Um, I think one of the most important things right now is to start, besides having those conversations, to think about how we can give students a framework for learning about and thinking about how we want to use these tools um, that is able to be adaptable as the tools themselves change and improve. So how can we be critical of what they can do? Where do we need the space or opportunity for human engagement to improve those outputs? How trustworthy and reliable are those algorithms or those data sets on which the tools are trained? Who has the access? Who has the knowledge? Who is left out of those conversations and spaces? So really starting to think about how we can understand what the tools do, what they do well, what they do poorly, and in some cases where we already have tools that do that and do it better. <laughs> um, and then thinking about and talking about how that will change over time is really going to be central to student success and central to supporting students as they transition um, educational levels now and in the future. So just tiny, tiny tasks for us all. Um, <laughs> that feel monumental. They do feel monumental, but that's part of why I spent some time saying start small. Mm 
like try it in your own practice if it's too much. Think about one or two ways that you can maybe interact with generative artificial intelligence and make one change. Maybe there's a particular thorny instructional problem. Maybe you have the reluctant reader, right? And you don't have to change everything to change something. That's exciting. <laughs> it is. It is. Lots of options for educators. But I think... Um... Well, and I think one of our big hot button uh, topics is that rewind to the potential of students using Gen AI full stop, right? That there is the possibility for the, I, I put in the prompt, it made the essay, I copied and pasted over the essay, look, look what I did. Uh, so how's Gen AI reshaping our understanding and approaches of plagiarism and academic integrity, especially in that post-secondary world? Yeah, this is a hard one and has been under very intensive conversation in the post-secondary environment. Um, and I should be very straightforward in saying that there are a wide range of perspectives in post-secondary from instructors who are embracing these tools to those who have also returned to pen and paper assessments, uh, largely out of fear of plagiarism or cheating. Um, so from my personal perspective, we have a few different issues when it comes to Gen AI and plagiarism, especially thinking about K through 12 and then post-secondary. So the first is providing um, options for students to account for um, and attribute or cite the use of Gen AI outputs. Um, the reality is that the predictive nature of the way in which those algorithms work means that outputs that are generated um, follow a lot of the standardized ways that we tend to write or use the English language. Um, and that means that Gen AI outputs will contain to varying degrees what we consider to be plagiarism. So we can't at this point anyway, tease apart those components. So the best recommendation is to really think about implementing a consistent and formalized citation and or attribution requirement um, and have students clearly articulate what and how they are using Gen AI outputs in their work. Um, one of the challenges in post-secondary to that is that it really almost needs to be at a programmatic or an institutional level because students need to have consistency in how they do that um, and it, because they have multiple instructors. Um, and that's certainly a concern at secondary um, within K through 12. So um, I think that issue is particularly challenging in K through 12. Some of my own past research um, looking at citation practices in grades six through 12 science fairs um, led me to lead me and my co-author to find that less than 35% of students in those settings 
who are often the highest performing students, um, properly used in-text citations or attribution, and that while there was a difference in citation adoption and practices between grades six through eight and grades nine through 12, their use of those in-text citations did not dramatically improve throughout high school. Um, and while students did tend to perform a little bit better on providing reference lists, um, that in-text issue is really important because that's going to tend to be the place where students would indicate the use of Gen AI outputs. Um, whether that is through a formalized citation that aligns with some sort of style or a note that actually describes how they used it. Um, and I would say those citation and attribution practices are already becoming fairly common practice in post-secondary environments. So really thinking about that and integrating that into the instructional approach is important for protecting against or addressing plagiarism, but is also important for helping students transition from K through 12 to post-secondary. We're also seeing a lot of discussion and testing around um, AI detection software. Um, which is interesting because uh, plagiarism detection software has been in heavy use for student uh, assessments within post-secondary for many years. Um, and the reality is that those automated approaches to identifying plagiarism really work best not when they're used as a punitive approach, but as an instructional tool where you can actually show students the automated report and help them see and understand the conventions and expectations of how we cite and attribute and give credit to other people's ideas and work and why that's important and is something that we care about. Um, and at institutions that are using that AI detection software. There have been a number of reports of instances of false positives and questions and concerns about the accuracy of those tools. So at present, the best recommendations are really to use those softwares in conjunction with other indications that the student has plagiarized, not to rely on it to be the one piece of evidence. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if it were easy, but it's not. And it turns out that humans are complex and learning is complex, though so an automated tool isn't necessarily the answer. Um, but we could think about ways that we could use those tools to help support the conversation. Um, and that really brings me to, I think, the third thing, which is that all of the research in academic integrity says that the best approach to protect against plagiarism and academic misconduct is in fact to speak with your students about it and your expectations for their learning. Um, students tend to be highly motivated to learn if they have a teacher who they perceive cares about them and those students who have a teacher who has demonstrated care for them are the least likely to engage in any form of academic misconduct. 
So if we remember back to my earlier recommendation that we speak to students about generative artificial intelligence, you can actually see that the recommendations for how to protect against or handle plagiarism or academic misconduct and what we should maybe be doing in instructional environments with Gen AI actually come together and magically align. Um, and that the greatest defense against plagiarism or whatever might be considered improper use of generative artificial intelligence is in fact you as the educator. Makes my heart happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's what we've been saying, so it's great to hear. Okay, um, so what emerging trends in Gen AI do you foresee having the most impact on education in the near future? So I think there are some key outstanding questions that will probably impact the educational environment. So things like copyright and intellectual property, for example, and also privacy and security considerations that really have yet to be resolved. And the exact direction this is going to go um, it will be sort of influenced by the answers to some of the outstanding questions that we have around those things. Um, and certainly, like privacy and security, for example, we know that within education, we have a responsibility to protect student data. And we also tend to be bound by legal agreements with vendors of educational technologies, scholarly publishers, and others who really limit the ways in which we can use their tools, information, and technology. And so in a lot of instances, we're seeing situations where some of our vendors are starting to integrate these technologies into things we already use, but we have a lot of questions about, well, what does this mean for how you're using student data? We have obligations in this area. And so all of this is going to sort of shape what is happening in education throughout the sector. Um, I think these things are going to continue and accelerate. And I don't have an answer um, other than to say, these are really key questions and will ultimately influence what we do. Um, in a really practical sense, we're going to see assessments continue to change and probably the way that we assess learning is going to look different five years from now than it does now. It looks different now a year in than it did when this, you know, when we really got into it about a year ago. Um, I do think we're going to see a higher level of personalization um, and adaptation to the individual needs of students, or at least I hope we will. Um, and I think everyone is going to just become more comfortable using generative artificial intelligence tools. Um, I also think that it's going to from my background as a librarian, change the way in which students really work with information. Um, and that probably generative artificial intelligence has the possibility to make learning more dynamic and fluid and focused on those individualized needs of students. Um, I also think 
we're going to see a lot more attention paid to how we can effectively teach students to work with these tools in effective and productive ways. Um, and I think we'll probably see some of the broader social conversations that are happening in government sector and in business influence what's happening in education, which isn't really that surprising. Um, but ultimately, I do think that this will probably lead to the development of some curriculum that can help guide us in engaging with both the use and critique of these tools in the educational space throughout the trajectory of a student's interaction with education, whether that's K through 12, post-secondary, um, or just lifelong learning generally. But I think we're probably still several years out from seeing those really curriculum-driven approaches to this. So we're going to continue to be in a space of rapid change for the next several years with this. Um, and I think as an individual educator, you are not going to see, you know, the forest for the trees, so to speak. We're, we're really going to be in a situation where the important thing to be thinking about right now is how does this influence and in a positive way what you can do in your own educational practice um, and what are maybe one or two active steps that you could take that will prepare you for whatever direction this ends up going long term. Um, and that's what we can do in a really realistic way now. We thank you so much for being here with us. You've given us a lot to think about, get excited about question and, and bring to our own practice. So we really appreciate your time and hopefully some of your predictions come true about being able to, to spend some time with the individual needs of our students. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Learning Dialogues. Don't miss our next episode where we'll be exploring the future of digital literacy with Matthew Johnson, the Director of Education for Media Smarts. We'll discuss how parents can support learning at home the implications of deep fakes, and discuss new resources for MediaSmarts to help navigate the evolving challenges of technology in education. Until next time, keep inspiring, keep innovating, and let's navigate the future of education together. We're the generation, the ones with the fire. We're breaking down walls, taking it high. In this classroom, we won't be confined.